welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We are pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Recently, uh, my wife and I were introduced to a new little restaurant here in uh, Johns Creek. I'm not going to give you the name of it because I don't think it's appropriate for me to start giving free advertisements for local businesses. Uh, But once we found this place, I guess the first or second time I went there, I got the hamburger. Because if I go to a restaurant, the hamburger is on the menu. I figure that's a pretty good test to see if this is a good place to come back to. So I got the burger, and it was thick, and it was juicy, and it was uh, well-dressed. And, uh, but the greatest thing about the burger was that on it was a sauce that was named after the restaurant. So it's sort of their, their secret sauce. And I will have to tell you, the secret sauce is really, really good. I mean, they really should keep the recipe a secret. Because uh, to me, not only did it make the hamburger great, I was dipping my french fries in it. Uh, I wanted to pour it on my salad dressing. If I were three years old, I would have looked at my plate at the end of the meal. Uh, it was just really, really good. Well, uh, secret sauce makes a big difference. Today's sermon is about uh, the, the thing that, in my opinion, is sort of the secret sauce of the Christian experience. Now, today's sermon is not going to be what we call an expository sermon. In other words, I'm not going to take one passage of Scripture and walk through a number of verses and unpack it. Instead, it's what we call a topical sermon. I'm going to take a topic. We're going to look at a number of different passages very quickly to get an overall theme of the Scriptures. And I will have to admit to you, in none of these passages will you find the word secret sauce. Okay? I'm sorry. It's really true. But uh, I would say that at this point, the beginning of the 21st century, uh, this is probably one of the best-kept secrets of the American church, and maybe the church around the world. And it's not a well-kept secret because God wants it to be a well-kept secret. It's a well-kept secret because for probably in the last hundred years, ministers and preachers haven't talked about this doctrine as much as we should have, though it is very central for those who are theologians and deep students of the word. What it is, is the believer's doctrine of our union with Christ. Our union with Christ. In fact, my bet is this, that most people who would profess to be followers of Jesus in America have probably never even heard of the term of our union with Christ. And if they've heard that term, they really don't know what it means and have no idea why it would be really important for the Christian's experience. Dr. Rankin Wilburn, pastor of Pacific Crossroads Church in Los Angeles, has said that for the believer to see and understand the doctrine of our union with Christ is like putting on a desperately needed pair of glasses, the right prescription. And when you put them on, all of a sudden it's like, wow. All of a sudden you see yourself and you see everything in a new way because you're looking at it through this lens. Once you start understanding our union with Christ and seeing your Christian experience through the lens of our union with Christ, I'll have to say everything changes. It really is crazy how deeply and profoundly theological leaders for hundreds of years have, have seen this doctrine of union with Christ given how little we understand it today. 
Let me give you just a few examples. Most of these will not be on the screen until the last one, but I want to give you some quotes from some theologians and church leaders over a number of hundreds of years about how important this doctrine of union with Christ is. They're short. You can hear, listen to them, and you'll catch the idea. John Calvin, the Swedish primary leader of the Protestant Reformation, probably uh, in, in, out of all the leaders, said this, the indwelling of Christ in our hearts and our mystical union with Christ is given the highest degree of importance in our minds. Jonathan Edwards, the greatest philosopher and theologian America's ever produced said, by virtue of the believer's union with Christ, he really and truly possesses all things. Thomas Godwin said, being in Christ and united to Christ is the fundamental identity and constitution of a Christian. Another minister said, union with Christ is right at the center of the Christian doctrine of salvation. Yet another, there are no benefits of the gospel apart from our union with Christ. Another person has said it this way, union with Christ is the fountainhead from which flows the Christian's every spiritual blessing. Finally, some, one other person has said union with Christ is theological shorthand for the gospel itself. And then finally, you're going to see this one on the screen. Dr. John Murray in his great book, Redemption, Accomplished, and Applied, says it so well. Nothing is more central or more basic than union with Christ. It is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Wow. If that's true, how did we miss it? How did we ever miss it? How are we going to approach this today? Let me give you sort of a preview of where we're going in the sermon. Three main points. The first is this. We're going to look at this New Testament theme of in Christ four or five passages very quickly to show the theme of being in Christ. And then we're going to look at some very practical implications of my union with Christ. And then finally, in just the last five minutes of the sermon, we'll look at what our response should be to this beautiful, beautiful good news of union with Christ. Let me also say by way of introduction that this is really a big advertisement for two books that I've read in this last year that I would recommend to you. One by Rankin Wilburn is called Union with Christ. It's very readable by any interested teenager or any adult. Very, very profound theologically, but very readable and very understandable. The other one called The Whole Christ. If you're sort of new to the Christianity thing, that may be a little over your head. But if you're a Christian leader in any way, shape, form, or fashion, if you've been following Christ for a good number of years, then I would also recommend Sinclair Ferguson's book, The Whole Christ. You also need to know this. This doctrine of our union with Christ, I did not understand, really. I did not understand it for years, even after being a minister. But once I came to understand it a little more deeply, it has been life-changing, utterly, absolutely life-changing to understand this idea of our union with Christ. So first, let's look at some of this, this theme in the New Testament of our union with Christ. Basically, it is seen anywhere in the scriptures in which it talks about Christ being in us or our being in him. Dr. John Ortberg has said that 165 times in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses the phrase in Christ. We're just going to look at five of these passages today. First of all, in the book of Colossians, in Colossians 2.6, it says this. Paul says, since you have accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, live in union with him. That's today's English version. Literally in the Greek it says, as you've received Christ as Lord, so walk in him. A very Hebraic literal term of walking in Christ. 
Living in union with him is the idea. When Paul wrote to these Christians in Colossae, he was battling against a heresy. It was a heresy that promised a deep kind of spirituality. And the Apostle Paul basically says, ignore the mumbo-jumbo of that heresy. Everything you need, you have in Christ because you are united with him. In fact, over 25 times just in the book of Colossians, Paul uses the term in Christ or with Christ or says that Christ is in us. Also, we see the theme in the book of Ephesians, this book we've looked at the last four or five weeks. Ephesians 1.3 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing, where? In Christ. Ephesians 1.7, In him, that is, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Ephesians 1 gives us such a beautiful description of how rich we are in Christ, and that's all found in him. Look at the book of Romans, a little longer passage, chapter 6, 3 through 11. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if, you, if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who's, who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves, reckon yourselves, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I love how our lead pastor, Randy Pope, uses this passage in Romans 6 to teach how we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is not even mentioned in Romans chapter 6 or in chapter 7. The Holy Spirit comes in chapter 8. But in teaching it this way, Randy is connecting Romans 8 about the Holy Spirit with our union with Christ in chapter 6. And I think he's right on target. Basically, what Paul is saying here is this. You have faith, and that faith is in a person. And that person is Jesus. And it's very specifically in his death and in his resurrection. When you put your faith in his death and resurrection, you are joined together with him. And the reason that his death takes away your sins is that God sees you as in Christ when he died on the cross. Therefore, you're forgiven. The reason you have newness of life because of the resurrection of Jesus is that God sees you in Christ in the newness of life that Jesus has because of his resurrection. It's all there in the gospel of Jesus, his death and his resurrection. So basically, Paul says here, know that you're united with Christ by faith. Now, know it, believe it, reckon it to be true, count it to be true. And based upon that, give yourself to the Lord and see yourself having power to overcome sin. This is a powerful way here in Romans 6 of him saying your faith is in a person, and that person is Jesus And when Jesus' death and his resurrection is the object of your faith, 
You get the benefits of that death. You get the benefits of that resurrection because you're one with Christ. Another place that this comes up is in the book of Galatians. This was my very favorite verse as a teenager, Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Notice I have a present faith and a present indwelling Christ. But that present faith, that present indwelling Christ brings to me the power of his crucifixion that he died for me. I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. In fact, if I were to give a definition of what it means to be in Christ, I would say there are three parts of that definition. First of all, it is indeed mysterious. Theologians usually refer to it as our mysterious union with Christ because we can't completely fathom it. We can't completely understand it. It's not irrational. It's not illogical. It's just beyond our full comprehension. And that's how many of the most important doctrines of the faith are. We believe in one God who eternally exists in three persons. It's not illogical once you come to understand it, but it's a mystery beyond our total comprehension. Jesus is both divine and human, and in becoming human, he does not lose his divinity. It's not illogical once you come to understand it, but it's a mystery beyond our full comprehension. And in the same way, this is a mysterious union with Christ that we have. And we see it as mysterious, it's that we are in Christ, and it is that Christ is in us. Now, let me give you an illustration of this. Of course, illustrations always fall short to some degree, but the best way I can maybe give you a word picture for this. When I was younger, as a kid, as a teenager, and as an adult for many years, I loved playing basketball. As a kid, I was not a great player, but I was good enough to make my school team through grade school and middle school and up through my junior varsity year of high school. And then I concluded there really wasn't a market for a 125-pound forward who did not have a good shot from the wing. So I just gave it up, just gave it up. Decided to play tennis instead my last uh, two years of high school. But during those years that I played basketball, I enjoyed it greatly. Now, let's imagine I wanted to get back into basketball, and I look at myself and say, well, I'm not going to do very well. But let's say that I could have a mystical union with LeBron James. That would be great. Now, what would it mean to have this mystical union with LeBron James? Well, it would mean, first of all, that I am in him, and his record of accomplishments and achievements become mine because I am in him. I share in his achievements. I share in his accomplishments. Because what he has done, well, I was in him when he did it. So therefore, I have three NBA championships. I have three NBA final MVPs. I've been a 13-time NBA All-Star. I was the scoring champion in 2008 and the NBA Rookie of the Year in 2004, and twice have been Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year because I had this mystical union with LeBron James. I am in him and his accomplishments become mine for me. But not only am I in LeBron James, but LeBron James is in me. And therefore, not only do I have a new record of basketball accomplishments, I have a new ability to play basketball. So that he thinks through me, and he moves through me, and he shoots through me, and he passes through me, and he rebounds through me. I'm not him, but the fact that he is in me changes my ability to play the sport. Now that's an inadequate illustration and it's an impossible illustration. But what is not true physically 
is true spiritually. That in God's viewpoint, we are as believers in Christ in such a way that we share in the record of his accomplishment for us. And because he is living in us, we have not only a new record, we have a new ability to live in a way that pleases God. Now, before we move on to some other implications, let me connect this week's message with last week's message. Last week in Ephesians 4, we read this in verses 22 and 24. Paul says, when you were converted, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires. And you were taught at conversion to put on the new self, created to be like God, don't miss this, in true righteousness and holiness. True righteousness, true holiness. Now, we would very accurately say that to put on the new self is to put on Christ. Let me say that again. To put on the new self is to put on Christ. And when we put on Christ, he makes us new creatures. And as a result of putting on Christ, two things happen. He declares us to be righteous, and he starts to work, to, starts to work within us his holiness. John Calvin, the theologian I quoted from earlier, talked about the twofold grace of God or the two graces of God. In Latin, it is the duplex gratia Dei. The two graces of God are righteousness and holiness. One grace is the grace of justification. He declares us to have a right standing before him and to be as righteous as Jesus. And then he starts working within us a holiness that he produces in and through us because of the Holy Spirit, the twofold grace of God. In fact, I have a, rec- a chart here to try to explain this to you. Look at, first of all, at the right-hand part of this chart. Here are the two graces of God. Justification, which is imputed righteousness by the Father. What does that mean? That means this. Imputation is an accounting term. And when Jesus died for us, it's like God put on the account of Jesus all of our sin, and he paid the debt. And then when we put our faith in Jesus... He takes all the righteousness of Jesus and he credits that to our account. So he imputes that righteousness to us. He declares it to be true of us. And what does that give us? It gives us a perfect record in the eyes of God. But not only does the grace of God bring us a perfect record in his sight, the grace of God brings us sanctification, that is growth in holiness. What is holiness? Holiness is living in conformity with the law and the will of God. So God starts working within us through his spirit that we would have an increasing and progressive transformation in our behaviors, our attitudes, and our motives, and the affections of our heart. Both of these come from God's grace, ultimately. But I want you to look at the left-hand side of the chart. What's the real source of this other than the God choosing to act by grace? The, The causal reason, so to speak, is the gospel itself, that is, the lordship, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. His cross, his empty tomb, brings to us justification and sanctification. But notice how it becomes ours. It becomes ours through our union with Christ. So here are the several conclusions, several points of this chart. Both justification and sanctification are a work of God's grace. Never think that one is by grace and the other is not. Both are a work of God's grace. Both are resourced, so to speak. Both are ultimately resourced through the cross. It is the cross of Christ and the empty tomb of Christ, the gospel of the reign of Christ, the lordship of Christ. All of that is what brings to us both imputed righteousness 
and infused holiness. And though there are differences between these two, justification is the declarative. God declares it to be true of us. Sanctification is a transformation. Justification is a new record. Sanctification is a new way of living. Justification happens all at once, in an instant, and it never changes. Sanctification is a lifetime of transformed living. But here's the point. They are both coming to us through our union with Christ. That's where we get them from. So there's a brief survey of what the Bible teaches. Now, what are some implications of that? If you're like me, you hear about a doctrine, and you're like, okay, that's a doctrine, that's great. But what are the implications of that? What difference would this make in my life tomorrow, the way I behave, the way I think, the way, what I love, what's going on in my heart, in my head? Bob, give me something practical. So very, very quickly, let me give you five practical implications of this union with Christ. First of all is this, Christ is enough for the satisfaction of my heart. Christ is enough for the satisfaction of my heart. You know, I've realized every time I let a temptation draw me into sin, that is an indication that I'm not being satisfied with Christ. That there's something else that I've thought to myself, I have to have that so much, I willingly disobey the will of God because I think I have to have that because Jesus is not enough. I like the way Dr. John Piper has put it. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's beautiful. I like the way he has rephrased the first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The question is, what is the chief end of man or the ultimate reason mankind exists? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And Piper has paraphrased that to say that we could say our chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And I think he's right on target about that. Christ is enough for the satisfaction of my heart. Secondly is this, Christ is the source of my security with the Father. We all want to know that we have a secure eternal salvation, right? We all want to know that the Father loves us and is not rejecting us. Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? Who are in Christ. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. Yes, I sinned yesterday. Yes, I will sin today, and I will sin tomorrow. But there's no condemnation for me if I am in Christ. 1 John 4, 18 says, perfect love casts out fear. Once I know his love, I don't have to be afraid of the Father I know that I have his love. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear when you were converted, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. So Christ is the source of our security with the Father. Number three is this. Christ is the immediate goal in the means and disciplines of grace. Now, what I mean by the means and disciplines of grace, there are certain disciplines that God has given to us that help us continually start or continually keep on experiencing God's grace. There are private disciplines like reading the scriptures or memorizing scripture or praying or fasting or journaling. There are corporate disciplines like coming to worship, hearing God's word, taking communion. But in all of those things, we're, we are to seek Christ. For many years of my life, I thought, well, I'm going to read the Bible or pray or go to church. And the real goal is to learn something. If I learn something, I can grow. Now, there, we should be growing in our knowledge. But what I didn't realize was that the primary thing I'm to do in all of these disciplines is to find Christ, to seek Christ. And as a result of seeking him, there will be life change in my life. 
Robert McGee has put it this way in his book, The Search for Significance. Sort of long, but it's great. He says, it's important to understand that fruitfulness and growth are the results of focusing on Christ and desiring to honor Him. When growth and change are our primary goals, we tend to be preoccupied with ourselves instead of with Christ. Am I growing? Am I getting any better? I'm more like Christ today. What am I learning? This inordinate preoccupation with self-improvement parallels our culture's self-help and personal enhancement movement in many ways. Personal development is certainly not wrong, but it's misleading, and it can be very disappointing to make it our preeminent goal. If it is our goal at all, it should be secondary. As we grasp the unconditional love, grace, and power of God, then honoring Christ will increasingly be our consuming passion. The only one worthy of our preoccupation is Christ, our sovereign Lord, who told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And likewise, Brian Chappell has said in his terrific book, Holiness by Grace, spiritual change is more a consequence of what our hearts love than what our hands do. The spiritual disciplines are important, but not as important as developing a heart for God. And therefore, you should connect the two, I would say. Hands and hearts coordinate and reinforce each other's functions in the biblical mode of sanctification. But the heart is the command center for every battle. A full and consistent apprehension of why we love God is the most effective piece of armor in the Christian arsenal because the devil always begins his attack with an alienation of our affections. Thus, our most powerful spiritual weapon is consistent adulation of the mercy of God revealed in Christ. We preach the gospel to our own hearts, telling others and ourselves of God's eternal love, of Christ's humble birth, sinless life, selfless sacrifice, victorious resurrection, and coming glory. Amen. Well said. Christ is who we seek in the means of grace. Number four is this. Christ is the means of sanctification and spiritual growth. I grew up in a Baptist church where I sort of inadvertently caught the idea that to be forgiven of my sins and get my ticket to heaven, that's about Christ and the cross. But in growing in holiness and living a life pleasing to God, well, that's not about Christ and the cross. That's about God's law and my effort. And that's the way I viewed it. Well, somewhere along the way, I came into contact with Campus Crusades ministry and learned more about the Holy Spirit. But frankly, it still left me with a Christless view of Christian growth. For many years, I viewed it this way. Forgiveness and a ticket to heaven is Christ and the cross. And then growing in holiness is the law and the Holy Spirit. And then later, I came to have a much more biblical view to realize that the law and the Holy Spirit was involved all along the way, and in both cases, I'm to focus on Christ and the cross. Yes, without, a, without being exposed to God's law, I would never know I'm a sinner. I wouldn't know I need Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit that drew me to put my faith in Christ in the first place. But when I was converted, I was focused on Christ and the cross. Well, my growth in holiness is much like that too. It is the Holy Spirit that will give me the power to go down the road of God's law. God's law shows me what is right and good. I'm to love his law and seek to obey it. But my focus is really not so much the law or the spirit. My focus is still Christ and the cross because it's through the power of Christ. It's through the power of his cross that I'm continuing to, continuing to be transformed and changed. Sanctification is Christ-centered. It's cross-centered. 
In John chapter 7, this is the way Jesus put it. He said, he who believes in me from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds the comment, this Jesus said in, rela- in reference to the Spirit. Now listen to what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit to overflowing, your faith is to be in Jesus, he said. Putting your faith in Jesus produces the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Jonathan Edwards has put it this way in terms of our faith in Christ. From the unchangeableness of your Savior, you may be assured of your continuance in a state of grace. As to yourself, you are so changeable that if left to yourself, you would soon fall utterly away. There's no dependence on your unchangeableness. But Christ is the same, and therefore, when he has begun a good work in you, he will finish it. For he has been the author, and he will be the finisher of your faith. Your love to Christ is in itself changeable, but his love to you is unchangeable. And therefore, he will never suffer your love to him utterly to fail. The apostle gives the reason why the saints' love to Christ cannot fail, and that is that his love to them will never fail. The last implication is this, that Christ is the motive for our obedience. Why do you obey the Lord? Is it out of fear? Is it out of pride? No, the love of Christ. Paul said in Corinthians, the love of Christ controls us. I think that's primary, his love for us that that ignites our love for him, and it is that exchange of love that controls us and compels us and motivates us in everything we're to do. Galatians 5, 6, Paul says, the only thing that counts is faith working through love. And I like the way that Jonathan Edwards has put it, our last quote to read today. A result of faith working by love is freedom. On this basis, obedience is called evangelical or gospel-based the obedience of children to a father done with love and delight as opposed to obedience that is legalistic, slavish, or forced. God is now served for his own sake. Holiness is chosen for its own sake and for God's sake, that is, for his glory. So there's the New Testament theme. There are just five implications. And now lastly, what's our response to be? What's our response? Well, you know, the reality is those five things would be important to remember every day, but it's hard to remember five things all the time. And you and I are going to blow it. We're going to blow it every day and really not live out these five things I've just told you about. So what should our response be? And it's what we call here at Perimeter the gospel waltz, and that is to believe, repent, and obey. Believe, repent, and obey. You see, we're going to blow it. We're going to need to repent. But over and over again, the avenue of grasping Christ is repentance and faith. We reach out with repentance and faith, and with both hands we grab onto Christ. And as we grab onto him with repentance and faith, he becomes the power for our obedience. Now let me conclude with a story and with an exhortation that in fact somebody came up to me between the two services and said, Bob, what you said at the end, I put away my pencil. I'd, away, I'd put away my pen. That was, that was the best part of the sermon. So let me give you a story, and then let me conclude. With, maybe it'll help you put it all together, too. Many years ago, Dr. Bill Bright told the story about, that illustrates how we as Christians should live in our wealth, though we may not know that we have it. And that wealth is found in our union with Christ. He told the story of a man by the name of Mr. Yates, who back during the Great Depression in the 1930s was a, a farmer... Uh, and a a rancher 
a sheep rancher out in Texas. And he was actually so poor, he was living on a government subsidy and not even able to make a living at what he was doing. But one day, some seismographic, a seismographic crew came to his uh, farm. They worked for an oil company, and they said, we think, Mr. Yates, that you may have oil on your property. Can we drill a wildcat well and, and figure things out? So they signed all the appropriate work, uh, paperwork. And at 1,115 feet, they struck a huge oil reserve. The first well came in at over 80,000 barrels a day. And then 30 years later, after that discovery, the government estimated that that well would still produce over 125,000 barrels a day. Now, here's the point. Mr. Yates owned all that. He was absolutely wealthy, but he didn't know it. And he had not gained access to it. Well, believer, you are rich in Christ. Don't live in spiritual poverty. Live according to your wealth in Christ. And here's the way that Dr. Sinclair Ferguson has put it. It is a very simple statement. It is a statement so simple that when I read it, I thought it meant barely anything at all. But the more I've thought about it, the more I've studied it, the more I've considered it, I realize how powerful the statement is. And it is this statement that the benefits of Christ are always found in Christ. The benefits of Christ are always found in Christ. Now, God's law is very important in our lives. We don't know that we need Christ. We don't know what holiness is. We are to love God's law and study it. But our faith is not to be in the law because the benefits of Christ are always found in Christ. The Holy Spirit is very important in my life. He is the one who brings me the benefits of this union with Christ. But the Bible once never tells us to put our faith in the Holy Spirit. It over and over again tells us to put our faith in Christ. Because when we put our faith in Christ, we experience through the power of the Holy Spirit all that we have. The benefits of Christ are always found in Christ. Yes, in my growth in grace, there is to be discipline, there is to be effort. And there is always to be faith and repentance by which I grab on to the living Christ. But my faith is not in my faith, and my faith is not in my repentance, and my faith is certainly not in my discipline and my effort. My faith is always in Christ, because the benefits of Christ are always found in Christ. May we live a radically Christ-centered life, a radically Christ-focused life, because of our union with him that we would have every other blessing and benefit. I end with the verse that we first looked at, Colossians 2, 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so live in union with him every day of your life. Let's pray as we close. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are not only one who came for us years ago to save us. You live in us now. You reside in us, and we are in you. Thank you, Lord, that all of your accomplishments for us are ours because we are joined with you, that we are dead to sin, our sins are paid for and gone, we have been given newness of life, and we have power in this newness of life because we are one with Christ. Thank you that one day when Jesus comes back, we, in fact, will even reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And thank you that right now, as Jesus resides in us by his spirit, there is a new ability to say yes to holiness, a new ability to say no to temptation. 
a new transformation of our lives to reflect your good and perfect will. So, Lord, thank you for the gift of righteousness. Thank you for the change of our hearts to be given the developing gift of holiness. Thank you that you have made us one with our Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.